In the Pew Bible, it's on page number 1210, 1210, and we're just going to read the first three verses. We say a little bit about why the therefore is there for, um, uh, but we'll, let's just read into the first three verses. The writer of the Hebrews says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us... Fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. As Peter has already said, we're continuing and actually concluding our series of Living by Faith, and uh, the subtopic for tonight is Faith and Focus. And just briefly, uh, knowing that uh, we've got communion this evening as well, and also in the whole metaphor of the race thing, my wife is actually timekeeping uh, for the sermon, and she says, Rodney, don't just start well, we want you finished on time as well. So um, I'm encouraged by that greatly. Thanks, Jeanette, for that. But we're looking at just these three verses, and I want to get some fairly key points across. The introduction then, better by far. Excuse me, let me take my jacket off. The writer to the Hebrews, sorry, the letter to the Hebrews, essentially um, a book that focuses on two main points. Some commentators have even suggested that it rather reads like a sermon with two points. The first point, focusing on the supremacy of Christ, we find in chapters 1 through the middle of chapter 10. Uh, The supremacy of Christ, that is over everyone and everything that has preceded him within Judaism. The writer points out that Christ is by far greater than the angels or Moses, the Old Testament priesthood, and then the new covenant secured by the means of the blood of Jesus, who gave his life once for all, is by far superior than the sacrificial system that requires that constant, repetitive animal sacrifice, but never ever cleanses or affects any change in the life of the worshipper. The second point in the remaining chapters is the supremacy or the superiority of faith, stressing the need for the followers of Christ to stay on track with their new belief system and the practices that they've adopted with that, avoiding the danger of falling away from God's grace and going back into that which they had formerly practiced within Judaism prior to becoming Christians. The writer uh, moves from the argument of his first point into the instruction of his second. And he calls his readers to persevere in this newfound faith, even if that means trial or persecution for them. The life of faith in Christ Jesus' finished work not only benefits the believer in the here and now, but it holds out in store the great reward for those who have begun by faith, continued by faith, and end by faith, either when Christ comes back to this earth or when he calls them home through death. 
quick illustration from my childhood. Um, I know that I reveal sometimes too much in the pulpit when I talk about myself. But when I was in my youth, I used to compete in inter-school sports. Now, I don't want this to sound so grand. I, I grew up in the Orkney Islands where I only went to a school where there was never more than 65 pupils in total, and that was all the primary and secondary classes. So, you understand, this is not on a big uh, running track, uh, sponsored by European money. Um, actually, the sports day between the schools was held in one of my dad's fields. And in the morning, we would clear the cows and the sheep off it and, and, and move uh, other stuff away to make the running track safer. <laughs> Uh, and then folks would come in their boat loads to the island and, and we'd have a fantastic sports day. And, uh, you know, looking at me now, uh, you might think I was never the athletic type. Well, just let me warn you, you too can have a body like this if you're not careful. <laughs> but when I was younger, I used to be fairly competitive and, and reasonably athletic. Uh, my, my main sports, if you like, were the shot put. And uh, I could do a reasonable hundred meters dash with a prevailing wind and the cheering crowd behind me. And on this, this one uh, year, uh, I'm just leaving boyhood into adulthood and leaving school and going on into to adulthood. And I was running the 100 and the 200 meters on the sports day when the 800 meter adult male competitor dropped out for our team. And uh, towards the end of the day, already quite tired and exhausted, uh, some folks came to me and said, well, we've really got no one else but would you run in the 800 meters race? Now, I, I'd never ever run over that distance, not even in practice. All I knew that is when you run, uh, and if there's a coach in here, you might want to talk to your people afterwards because I'm going to influence them badly now. When you run 100 or 200 meters, guys, when you hear the starting pistol, you just leg it as hard as you can from the start to the finish. That's the best way to run it. Just keep remembering to breathe as you're doing it. And, and uh, my friend and I uh, took first and second prizes all that year until it came to the 800 metres. And I had no idea how to pace myself, how to set lap times or whatever. And so when I heard the starting pistol as a boy running in the adult male competition, I just legged it away from the start. <laughs> and I did really well for the first 100 metres, 200 metres, 300 metres, 400 and then I thought, well, where's the rest of them? Because I'm so far ahead of the field by this time because they're pacing themselves to finish. I had no idea I should have done that. As we get within the last 200 meters, they start to go past me. First one, then another. Then another guy draws level. And I find a bit of energy from somewhere and I try to keep up with him for a little while, but soon he leaves me as well. I can't actually remember crossing the finish line. <laughs> I did... And not last, but I passed out somewhere just before the finish line. And so when I came to, uh, from being unconscious, they said, you finished. But you know, the thing was that actually as I came up that home straight, I could remember the home crowd, um, you know, of about 50, uh, really just calling my name out. And that was the important thing. And maybe you're a Christian here tonight. And in the race of life, the race of faith that's set before you, you're flagging a little bit. And I want to encourage you that there's a crowd of witnesses calling out your name. Come on, you can do it. You can make the finish line. You can do this. You can finish and complete this race. Many people in the Christian race drop out or become fatigued or critically injured along the way. And I want this evening just to consider three simple things that we can do to help us be better prepared, to be better trained and better equipped to make sure that we not only cross the finishing line, but we do so as those who qualify as trophy winners and as champions. Turn back in Hebrews 
to the end of chapter 10, will you? Just to put in context what we're reading about tonight, at the end of chapter 10, the writer says there in verse 35, Do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, I will not be pleased with him. Verse 39. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believe and are saved. This is the destiny. This is the final truth, the final reality for all those who begin the race, continue the race, and finish the race by faith. Paul, towards the end of his life, can say to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4 and verse 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. What an epitaph for each one of us to to own as our own and to be able to say at the end of our lives. So how can we be inspired to run so that we too, with confidence, can finish our race? Well, three very simple points. Look at others. Look at ourselves. And then, the most important of all, look at Jesus. So, first of all, look at others. In the first part of verse 1 of chapter 11, sorry, of chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, we need to focus on those who have already run and finished the race. Now, they're primarily those who have been mentioned in chapter 11 and over which... um, the preaching team here in Charlotte Chapel have been concentrating on for uh, a year or so now. But it isn't an exhaustive list. I think you can look at others outside the context of Hebrews 11 uh, and have inspiration from their lives as well. But they're there as examples in the Bible. um, And we can pick out three inspirational, motivating truths from their example. The first thing is, we know that they finished the race. Um, you know, I, I don't know if someone came to coach you and said, well, I've never actually completed a race, but I can tell you how to do this better. Uh, it's the kind of armchair supporter. You know, the kind you get uh, watching the telly. If I was there and could coach that team, they would do so much better. And they've never done a field or track event in their life. They've certainly never played rugby, football, or dare I even say cricket in today's climate. But these are people who have finished their race. They've been there. They've done it. They know what it was like to run that race of faith. Now, some of the examples that we've looked over over the past year didn't actually run very well. And I don't want to stand in criticism. I know I don't run my race of faith terribly well most of the time, or at least some of the time. But at times it looked as if some of the people that we've even considered over the last year from Hebrews 11, it looked like their faith would falter or fall. But it didn't, since actually... Um, true God-focused faith doesn't depend on human courage or ability. What made King David the great man? That at sometimes he wasn't. It's because he focused on God. What about the prostitute Rahab? An unlikely candidate to be included in the great hall of faith fame, and yet she's there. Focusing on what God had done and what he was able to do for his people. It's the very point that I believe the writer to the Hebrews is trying to drive home to us, his readers. In the final analysis, 
The Christian life is not about what we do, and it's not even about how we cope that matters. It's about the fact that we stay focused on the one who's leading us to live by faith. It's important that we run the race marked out for us as well. That we don't run a race that's marked out for someone else. And we don't hang back from the race that God has called us to live by. Let's continue to read on there in Hebrews 11. Let's go back to verse 33. Hebrews 11, verse 33. Talking about those who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed enemies, foreign armies. The women received back their dead, raised to life again. Let's pause there. You know, maybe by now that's a kind of inspirational thing. Says, if the life of faith includes some of that stuff, I'm actually up for it. I want some of that. I want to experience some of that powerful, dynamic, supernatural ministry in my life. I'm kind of inspired by that stuff. We might be thinking we could really handle a bit of that. But let's look on into the next verses. Still in verse 35. Women received back the dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured and refused to be released. So they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging. While still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted and ill-treated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and holes in the ground. Dear friends, these people also lived by faith. And see what it says in verse 39. And they were all commended for their faith. Those who lived that dynamic spiritual race that was full of the supernatural and the exciting things that some people would crave after. But also those who lived a destitute life but still believers in God, living by faith, but didn't have of this earth's rewards. That they too were commended by the faith. The important thing is that you and I understand that both these categories of people finished their race. Their individual race set before them by the author of their faith and the perfecter of their faith. The second thing that we can learn from looking at that great cloud of witnesses is that they are those who have received their reward. Well, in one sense, they're still waiting to receive it so that when we have finished our race and God has finished with history as we know it and, and brings the whole ransom church home to be with him in glory, that they too will be made perfect uh, with us. One day, all believers, Old and New Testament, will be glorified together. God doesn't have two churches. You know, sometimes there is a teaching in the church that would make you think that somehow there's a Jewish church, that uh, when the Gentile church has been gathered in, that the Jewish church is still going to continue. God only has one church throughout all time and generations. And one day, we're all going to be gathered together in his presence. Finish, we're going to cross the finishing line. They've done that and they encourage us from the sidelines to keep on going. I have no idea of knowing whether or not those that are already in heaven look in. Um, I kind of hope not in some ways. Um, Because I know people who have gone on before me that I just kind of hope they don't see the way I live my life in in failure and frailty sometimes. But we're told that they're there on the sidelines, spurring us on, because they've got there, they've got the reward, and it's like, it's like their testimony, their lives cry out to us, keep going guys, 
Keep inspired. Keep focused. Keep on track. Because the reward that we have, you're going to have one day and we're going to share it together. Again, Paul, coming towards the end of his life and trying to pass on the mantle of the baton in this race that he's running to his young protege, Timothy. In 2 Timothy 4 and 8, he says, Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also those who have longed for his appearing. And then the third thing I want to say about looking at others is that they are those who have proved God reliable. Somebody to say, if God did it for them, he's going to do it for you. Look at who they are. Look at the kind of characters. Look at the failures they have. If God did it for them, surely we can lift our faith. We can heighten our expectation of faith and know that God, too, will make himself utterly dependable to you and to me. The second point that I want to make is that we need to look at ourselves. Having looked at others, we need to look at ourselves. If you compete in any physical race, it is wise to prepare and to train for it, unlike my unsuccessful 800-meter attempt some years ago. Now, the same principle applies in the spiritual race you and I are to participate in. Sadly, many followers of Jesus never reach their full potential because, first of all, they haven't read the training manual or put into practice its teaching. Now, the author of Hebrews recommends two very simple rules to be applied regularly as part of a training. The first one, he basically says, avoid anything that slows you down. He's going to go on to say, avoid the sin that so easily entangles as well. But first of all, he says, just avoid anything that slows you down. And I believe that that can be things that in and of themselves are not wrong. If you need to compete well in any sport or competition, you need to prepare for it. Now, there's nothing wrong, for instance, with owning a dinner jacket or a rucksack or even a camel suit. But if you wear these things in a race, then you're probably, as a novelty act, taking part in a marathon or a charity run rather than competing in any serious competition. You would throw them aside if you're serious about doing well in something like the 100 meters. Do you remember uh, from Scripture, uh, if you don't know the Bible, let me tell you once about a story that Jesus tells uh, in the Gospels about how a rich young man came to him one time. And the rich young man said to him, uh, Master, I too would be a follower of yours. Uh, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus gets into a dialogue with him about what it is right to obey in terms of the law and to put into practice But Jesus, seeing beyond just the words that the man was speaking, saw into his life and saw that he was very wealthy and that his attitude towards that wealth, but like Peter was telling us this morning about the riches that that can, can ensnare us, even as Christians, to the place of judgment. Jesus saw into this rich young man's life that that wealth was a problem for him. He didn't know how to handle it. He wasn't content unless he had amassed great wealth and it was all his. So Jesus said, if you really want to be free from any encumbrance in running the race of faith with me, he said, why don't you go and sell all that you have and give everything that you get from the sale of that, give it to the poor and then come and follow me. The scriptures tell us Jesus loved that young man, but Jesus' love for that young man at the end of the day didn't actually make any difference because he couldn't get up, give up the thing that was an encumbrance to him. The love of money had become a root of evil for him. 
and wealth eventually destroyed the possibility of him becoming a believer. At that point, his race finished, if indeed it ever started. Now, for you, it may not be money. It could be relationships. It could be career. It could be the pursuit of knowledge or academic study. When my wife and I were at Bible college, our librarian one day was cock a hoop. He was amazed to have had a delivery, an unexpected delivery, of several dozen boxes of really high-quality Christian books. It wasn't a gift from a benevolent college supporter. They were from a Christian pastor, whose name I've never discovered, so if he's present here tonight, then uh, he'll know I'm not talking about him personally. But he had been convicted of, and I quote his letter, of his lust of Christian literature felt convicted that actually the things that he had spent his money on and the amount of time that he gave to study was actually interfering with his personal walk with God. And so he repented of it and gave the books away to our college and then all of our students didn't read them. (laughs) Anyway, what he says here is if it slows you down, set it aside. Don't let it get in the way. The second thing he says, deal with any sin that may trap you. And that means, I believe, any sin in the past, or the present, or even to a Christian congregation, those who are already following Christ by faith, any sin in the future. The Apostle John says to Christians, if anyone says that you are without sin, you make God out to be a liar, and you're full of self-deception. But when you recognize that you're still not only got the capacity to sin, but that you actually do sin and you repent of it and you confess it, then he who is just will forgive you your sin and help you move on in your race. You've probably heard this from various teachers and preachers and disciples along your Christian walk. Uh, As far as I can ascertain, there are three major, three key areas in which the devil will try to entrap us within sin. They normally involve either money, sex, or power. Or as a friend of mine in in, um, New Zealand says, it's gold, guys, or glory. Or if you're of the other gender, it's gold, gals, or glory. Uh, Wanted to stay alliterated in his sermon points. You know, whenever Satan tries to entrap a Christian, I find that it's categorized under one of these things. And some of us already know our weaknesses. And we're accountable to others and we keep short accounts with God when we fall. But others need to learn that. That that's where the devil will come. And the writer to Hebrews says, look along the way he's going to set snares for you. He's going to set traps for you. Avoid them. Or when you get caught in them, learn how to deal with them. It's possible that someone here tonight has already fallen into sin. Or sins from that habitual power that's hard to break. It's maybe that you've already confessed to God an area of weakness or temptation. But you're constantly reminded, either by yourself or the devil, about your failure. You know, there's an opportunity to go to Malawi next summer and do some real good work for the kingdom. And I would love to get on board and do that. And this little voice says, who do you think you are? Going all the way to Africa to try to help people there when you don't even help your neighbor. You can't even help yourself. You're caught in that trap and you and I both know about how weak and how often you fail. Don't listen to that voice. 
Listen instead to the voice of your heavenly Father who is so for you. So for you. So determined to get you across that finishing line that I can't even begin to explain because the emotion of it would be so overpowering. God is so for you that while you were still a sinner, he sent his son to die for you. He gave the righteous for the unrighteous. Is God ever going to take away the reward of those who have put their faith in Christ, who continue to live by faith? I don't think so. I don't believe the Bible teaches that. I believe the Bible teaches that when you're truly a born-again child of God, you're his for all time and eternity. Do you believe that? How about an amen? You know, some people are just caught up by the devil who says, No, 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 you're going to fail. You're not going to make the finishing line. Because you keep on faltering, you keep on failing, you keep on sinning. Well, just keep on going back to the God who loves you and will forgive you every time you come and confess that sin. I'm not promoting sin here. I'm not suggesting you continue in a sinful lifestyle. I'm promoting what the Savior has done through the shed blood that he gave for you at Calvary. And you need to focus on him and not allow sin to get in the way. You know, the third thing that's there in that verse is that you need to pace yourself for the long haul. Note the runner is encouraged to run with perseverance. This is an active word that tells or speaks of a person who has a spirit in him that stands up and faces the trials of life. He's able to face his trials because he knows the Lord has brought these trials into his life for his own good and for God's glory. The Christian runner has endurance. He's got a little bit of grit about the way that he runs his life of faith. And he stands strong in the Lord as he runs. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 58 says, Therefore, my dear brother, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. And the third point, and I can feel myself speeding up because the time's already gone. Sorry, Jeanette, missed the point there. Uh, Look at Jesus. Look to the Lord. It's there in verses 2 and 3. First of all, the first point I want to make is in this race of faith, if you're going to make it to the finish line, guys, you've got to look at Jesus. You've got to look on him. You've got to focus on him. Look at his race. He lived a life that began in the poverty of an animal shelter and ended in the pain of execution by being nailed to a cross. Look at his life that you might be inspired by him. Look at his motivation. Jesus was able to run because he too lived by faith and was able to see beyond the cross. He could see a time beyond his suffering when his sacrifice would procure salvation for all those who he had come to seek and to save. He could foresee a day when his followers would join him in heaven and share eternity with him. He saw the day when sin and Satan would be utterly destroyed in a new era would begin when he recreates heaven and earth. And issues in a new order in the universe. And that vision that he lived by faith kept him going even when he felt like quitting. And some people might say, but Jesus never felt like quitting, Rodney. My brother or sister, you're wrong. You need to read what Jesus went through in the Garden of Gethsemane. Spiritually, he stayed focused. But psychologically and physically, he wanted to quit. He was a man who said, what lies before me, I do not want to do. And then he brought all of that under submission to the Father's will and said, yet not my will. What he said is, that's my will. 
The will of Jesus at this point is that I don't want to do this. I don't want to go through this. I want to quit. I want to stop. Yet not my will, but yours be done. And he saw beyond even the suffering and the pain of Gethsemane. Saw beyond the suffering and the pain of the cross. And God inspired him to live through by faith. And look at his reward. At the end of his race, Jesus sat down at the right hand of his Father in heaven. Knowing his final destiny allowed him to keep focused and keep on going right to the end. Do you know your destiny? Do you know where your final, final resting place in eternity is going to be? In the glory of God, in the presence of God and his holy angels, among those who are already ransomed and redeemed and waiting for us to join them. That's where we're going. And it doesn't matter what you're going through tonight. You need to focus beyond that pain, that suffering, that sorrow, that inconvenience, that incumbrance. You need to focus past that. That's maybe your cross that you bear daily. That's maybe your Calvary that you suffer on. Focus beyond that and know that there lies in glory a tremendous reward for you. So when the going gets tough and the race is difficult, look at others, look at yourself, look at Jesus, and when it gets harder still, in verse 3 we're told to focus harder on Jesus. Verse 3 exhorts us to consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. I've listed about 19 or 20 things in which he suffered in opposition from sinful men, including his own mum and dad, his brothers and sisters, his disciples, the religious people of the day. Uh, They're there in Scripture for you to look at. Let's finish in conclusion. What would Jesus do? It's a really good question for us as believers to ask. And you can check out what he would do. If he's insulted, what would he do? If he's mocked, what would he do? If he faced an obstacle in life, what would he do? If he faced temptation in life, what would he do? Go back to God's word and find out what Jesus did and then put into practice that same thing. What about his followers? Well, Jesus' followers follow his example and for the joy set before them, live by faith in the Son of God who loves them. I haven't a clue what your race looks like for the most part. But I want to give you just two very quick examples from the the race of some Christians. One I know and others I don't. The first one, really it's very, very tough for us to hear. But just recently I heard from the Barnabas Trust that in Iraq just now, Christians are suffering such persecution Uh, of a level and a severity that you and I would find it very, very difficult to comprehend. And some of you here tonight will find it very difficult to hear the next story. But just a few weeks ago, a little girl was kidnapped from her Christian parents. And unable or unwilling to pay the kidnap ransom, those who had kidnapped her executed her, beheaded her, cooked her body and sent it back to her parents on a bed of rice. Folks, that's their race. It's not my race. It's not your race. That's their race. And there lies in glory and incredible for reward if they stay focused and stay running the race. Some years ago, Jeanette and I had the great joy and just tremendous privilege of being hosts to a man called Dr. Nick. Dr. Nick uh, was a pastor in the church in Romania in Aradia during the time of the communist regime 
under Nikolai Ceausescu. For two years, during the, the heightened part of the persecution, um, he couldn't live at home for fear of his life, for fear of imprisonment, torture, uh, and, and possible uh, execution. So instead, he used to live no more than two days, but often just one day at a time, in the homes of his Christian congregation. I, I imagine it's a great way to get pastoral visits done, but uh, I don't think it would be recommended for a whole lot of reasons. After two years of living like this, Dr. Nick came home to his wife one night, and he said, I have concluded that I can't live like this any longer. Uh, I'm going back to my medical profession, I'm giving up the pastorate, and I'm quitting uh, leading God's people here in this awful God-forsaken country. And he thought his wife would understand, after all, he's hardly been home during these two years, only for one night at a time, if, if that. And as he came forward to, to kind of find comfort and her help, she actually rebuffed him, pushed him away with words similar to these. I didn't write them down, so I can't quote them verbatim, but they went something like this. Oh, Nick, I am so ashamed of you. When I think of what our lovely Lord Jesus Christ did in leaving the splendor of glory to come to earth to save people like you and me, I'm so ashamed that you feel we can't put up with this temporary inconvenience to be part of God's people here in this land. Later on that night, Dr. Nick went out from his house to continue his race a race that he continues to run to this day. So how are you doing? How are you running? What's the race set before you? Stay focused. Keep your eyes upon Jesus. And he'll see you through. But you know, maybe you've never even entered that race. Maybe I'm speaking to somebody who knows nothing about the life of faith. There is two destinies for human beings. There is one in heaven and glory with the Lord Jesus and there is one separated from him for all eternity in the place that Jesus identifies himself as hell maybe you need to get in the race and myself or many others in this building tonight would be able to tell you how to become a believer how to become a Christian how to give your life so that you too start the race of faith maybe you are a Christian and your faith is faltering you too need someone to counsel you and to pray with you we are very glad and pleased to offer ourselves in service to you. Maybe you're somebody who ran well, but you've just become a little bit tired in your old age. Can I very, very gently encourage you to get up off your butt and get back in the race and get involved, because it's not over until you see Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it inspires us. Thank you that you encourage us through it to become more and more like you. Help us now, Lord, as we come to meet around your table to truly focus on what Jesus has done for us and with hearts full of thanksgiving to give you praise and glory. We ask it in his name. Amen. We're going to stand together and sing number 55. The words will appear on the screen. If you're using a book, it's number 55, Beneath the Cross of Jesus.